Welcome to Disputes Digest for the week of March 10th, 2022. I'm Chris Campbell. Don't forget to follow Tales of the Tribunal on LinkedIn to stay up to date with news from around the world of international law and the dispute resolution field. And if you haven't already, take a moment and share the show with a friend or colleague. If you've got any feedback for the show, drop us a line at talesofthetribunal at gmail.com. And you already know the drill. Don't forget to leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. All right, now before we cover our first story of the day, we have two announcements that you won't want to miss. First, an event that we mentioned just last week and that I cannot wait to attend. The International Arbitration Masterclass, brought to you by the International Law Section of the American Bar Association. This two-day event is an exclusive opportunity to sharpen your practical advocacy skills, from preparing for the hearing, to cross-examination, to closing statements, and more. Attendees will have the experience of working with first-hand world-class practitioners on topics from across the international arbitration field. Names like Funke Adekoye, Daniel Gonzalez, Laura Hardin, Christian Leatherly, Michael Nolan, Erica Stein, and more. It's like that moment in Avengers Endgame, but with ABA International Arbitration instead. General admission is $475, but for listeners of Tales of the Tribunal, the ABA is offering a 50% discount for two days of instruction and guidance from industry-leading professionals. There are still seats available, but when they're gone, they are gone, and you'll have to wait until next year. Listen, don't miss out. We'll include the promo code in the show notes. Head over and register now. All right, let's jump into the news. And first, let's head to the United States, where the Southern District of New York has issued a ruling, the latest in the line of U.S. jurisprudence, this time supporting the principle that non-signatories to an agreement may compel signatories to arbitrate issues of arbitrability. The underlying case sees the Republic of Kazakhstan and Outrider Management LLC as plaintiffs in New York claiming that the defendant conspired to obtain a fraudulent international arbitration award against the amount of some 500 million U.S. dollars. Defendants removed the case to U.S. federal court in the Southern District via the New York Convention. The plaintiffs moved to remand the action to state court and the defendants cross-moved to compel arbitration of Outrider's claims. The court noted that Kazakhstan was not a signatory to the agreement, but defendants argued that even as a non-signatory, the Southern District of New York had subject matter jurisdiction and that Section 205 of the Federal Arbitration Act created jurisdiction for any case that is related to an arbitration agreement or award filing under the convention. The court did not buy this argument, however, holding that only Section 203 of the Federal Arbitration Act created subject matter jurisdiction and thus the motion to remand was granted for Kazakhstan. However, as the motion to compel was concerned, defendant argued that the other arguments before the court, i.e. questions of arbitrability, were questions for the arbitrator, not the court, to decide in citing delegation clauses in the arbitration agreement. In addressing this issue, in addressing this issue, the court read two Second Circuit decisions as its basis and created a dual inquiry of analysis. First, the court said that it must decide whether the arbitration agreement permits or precludes invocation by non-signatories. And second, the court must also decide whether a threshold of relational sufficiency exists between and among the parties to the dispute and the arbitration clause. The court therefore held that the defendant may compel plaintiffs to submit a question of arbitrability of the claims to the arbitrator. We'll include a fuller link to this story in the show notes. 
From there, let's head south of the border to the Gulf of Aloha off the coast of Baja California Sur in Mexico, a place just teeming with marine life from gray whales to lobster. The seafloor is so rich in wildlife and naturally occurring nutrients and chemicals that it has equally naturally found itself at the center of a multi-billion dollar arbitration suit that U.S. company Odyssey Marine Exploration has brought against Mexico under the terms of the original North American Free Trade Agreement, or NAFTA. We remind listeners of the show that the NAFTA agreement was replaced during the Trump administration with the U.S.-Mexico-Canada Trade Agreement, USMCA. Odyssey, a treasure hunting firm, I guess like old school pirates, turned mining company with little revenue of its own, secured financing from a private litigation firm in the U.S. to file a claim after local opposition arose to its project and Mexican authorities denied it an environmental permit. The story goes like this. Odyssey sought fishing concessions from Puerto Chale Fishing Cooperative in order to dredge the seafloor. The cooperative has opposed the project since the beginning and filed its objections consistently. The cooperative also sought to make additional submissions to the tribunal hearing the NAFTA matter, but the tribunal refused on the basis of relevance with one member of the tribunal dissenting, arguing that the cooperative should be heard given the gross impacts and potential impacts to them directly. To some in the community, this is an alarming development as more private firms bring arbitration suits over controversial projects to pressure or even force concession from less well-funded governmental entities. Odyssey's history goes back at least to the early 2000s when it made headlines for discoveries of centuries-old sunken ships filled with various pieces of silver and gold and then transitioning into a dredging business as a means of seeking more lucrative business options. The main concern of locals is this. At the conclusion of these dredging operations, the dredging material is discharged back into the sea, becoming a source of pollution, sedimentation, and even radiation in the environment, endangering plants and other wildlife species in the area. While there has been protest and retaliatory actions taken by activists, this has not stopped Odyssey's litigious strategy from going forward. These fundamental threats to the locals, as well as the finite state of the environmental resources, seem to be at odds with the interest of some companies, and private firms in particular, begging the question of international arbitration regime, how it purports to be a vehicle for justice. We'll keep eyes on the story and bring you updates as we hear updates. Then a more global and meta topic as March recognizes Women's History Month. And earlier this week, we saw International Women's Day celebrated across a number of jurisdictions with posts across social media, videos, articles, and the like, celebrating women both historically, contemporarily, and highlighting the injustices that women face, both personal and professional environments. One article that we'll highlight this week comes from Elizabeth Haas at JAMS, focusing on the disparities and apparent delayed progress among arbitral institutions. Ms. Haas notes that there has been a progress in terms of greater gender, ethnic, and geographical diversity, but also notes that among some arbitral tribunals and institutions, there has not been as much progress as the community would probably like. Indeed, she points to ICC arbitral tribunals and panels. In 2019, only 21% of arbitrators appointed were women, and that figure was just two points higher in 2020, which she points out more comports with the 70s and 80s trends in law school enrollment than it might with what one might imagine in the 2020s. She then points to a number of countries where women make up at least 30 to 50% or more practitioners in the legal field, 
including women that make up 40% of the judiciary worldwide, which is up 5% from just 10 years earlier. But she notes the rate of women appointed to arbitral cases seems to lag behind. Haas then argues that arbitral institutions are only part of the equation as the largest proportion of sole arbitrators are named and nominated and chosen by parties and counsel. And she queries about the connections between diversity and partiality and the overall performance of a given arbitrator. All legitimate questions for further consideration. Haas concludes her piece, both noting that the demands of the case and the clients will drive the choice of arbitrator, but reminds and implores readers and counsel who are undoubtedly among those following this decision and these considerations of the benefits of party autonomy and being aligned with their tendency to increase the selection for the betterment of the practice to rely upon. We'll include the article in full in the show notes. Finally this week, we end with an exciting announcement the Regulations and Rules Update of the International Center for Settlement of Investment Disputes, or ICSID, and they are an important part of the international investment law. They are the most used rules of procedure in investor state disputes, ISDS, and have been applied in over 800 cases to date. In late 2016, ICSID embarked on the most comprehensive amendment of the rules in its history, setting in motion a process that is now nearing completion, marking a major milestone the chair of the ICSID Administrative Council, ICSID's governing body, asked member states to vote on proposed amendments on January 20th, 2022. Votes must be cast by March 21st, 2022. And if approved, the new rules will come into effect on July 1st, 2022. Some things have not changed. The amendments remain procedural in nature and do not affect investment treaties, nor do they make structural changes to the institutions of dispute settlement. Similarly, these rules scrupulously retain the balance of the interest of state and investors alike, a primary objective of their original drafters. As a result, the updated rules will feel familiar to users of the exit system. At the same time, many of the amendments address proposals for procedural reform that have been raised in numerous fora in the past decade. These represent a significant change and set of changes. For example, efforts to increase and enhance transparency, tools to expedite arbitral proceedings, three, new disclosure requirements for third-party funding, four, broader access to ICSID rules, and five, new rules for mediation and fact-finding. Once adopted, ICSID will organize a series of presentations for states and practitioners to highlight new aspects of the rules and ensure that disputing parties take advantage of new tools in the rules. ICSID will also publish updated web content, including templates, charts, and other demonstrative tools. We'll include a link to the press release in the show notes. That's it for Disputes Digest. We'll look forward to seeing you next week in your newsfeed with more news from around the international dispute resolution, legal, and business world. If you have feedback for the show or comments for the show, drop us a line at Tales of the Tribunal at gmail.com. Until next week, this has been Disputes Digest by Tales of the Tribunal. None of the views shared today or in any episode of Disputes Digest is presented as legal advice nor advice of any kind. No compensation was provided to any organization or party for their inclusion on the show, nor do any of the statements made represent any particular organization, legal position, or viewpoint. All interviewees or organizations included appear on an arm's length basis, and their appearance should not be construed as any bias or preferred affiliation with the host or host's employer. All rights reserved.